Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Nice to see you all. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1. So Gospel of John chapter 1. Today is the first Sunday of the new year, as you all know. Next week, we're starting a new series, and our series is called Equipped to Serve. And in this series, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be studying what are called the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles is the name that we give to three books of the New Testament, First. Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Do you realize that over the past few years here at Whitefields, we've actually studied through most of the books of the New Testament? And one of our kind of goals, our dreams, is to kind of finish out the New Testament, have that as an online resource that you and others can access to have teachings through the entire New Testament. So as we continue our journey through the New Testament, we're going to be studying 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So I hope you're excited for that. That's going to start next week. Encourage you to invite a friend or a family member, somebody you know who would benefit from that important study beginning next week. But today, for the first Sunday of the year, we're going to be looking at a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. So would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we give you this time. We thank you for your goodness and grace towards us. Thank you, Lord, that you are full of grace and truth. Uh, and we experience that in our lives. So we pray that you would help us that as we consider these things about who you are, what you've done, what it means for us, Lord, that not only would we know that they're true, not only would we believe them, but that they would affect our lives in such a way that transforms us. Lord, that other people might see who you are through us. So Lord, we ask during this time, help us to understand, help us to apply these things to our lives, that we might be transformed into the people you desire us to become. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Guard the culture. Guard the culture. That was the advice that the departing senior pastor gave me when I took over as the pastor here at Whitefields Community Church. The year was 2012, and I had just moved to Colorado from Hungary, where I had spent my entire adult life up until that point. So my wife and I and our kids, you know, we packed up everything that we owned. We spent all of our savings to move here, Colorado from Hungary. We handed over our ministry that we led over there because we believed that God was calling us to this community to be part of what he was doing in and through this church. Now, the outgoing pastor, he was the one who started this church. His name was Pete. And before he left, here's what he said to me. He said, the most important piece of advice I can give you is this. Guard the culture. He said, that's your number one job. As the pastor of this church, it's imperative that you guard the culture. And as he said that, I looked at him and I nodded my head to indicate that I absolutely understood what he was saying. And I said, yeah, that's great advice. I'm going to totally do that. But the truth is, as I was nodding my head, I had no idea what that meant. I was like, guard the, I don't have no, I don't know what that means. But although I didn't know what it meant, uh, I felt like it seemed like it was probably pretty good advice. And so I thought, I hope that one day I will know what that means. And so I've kind of just kept that advice in the back of my head and thinking, wow, I hope that someday I can do that and figure out what that means and, and put that into practice. And so for the past several years, you know, I've kept that phrase in the back of my mind, guard the culture. 
And I've thought about it a lot, and I'm proud to say that now uh, I've come to the point where I think I do know what it means and how to implement it. Now, it's interesting because before I moved to Colorado, right? I spent 10 years in Hungary. And during my time in Hungary, I interacted a lot with this idea of culture. I learned a lot about culture. A lot of the things I learned about culture were things that I learned by surprise because like people would do things that seemed super strange to me, but it was normal to them. Or on the other hand, I would do things that would offend people, but I wasn't trying to be offensive. I was just doing what I thought was the normal thing to do. So I understood culture as a concept, but I had never really thought about culture as regards a church, right? In the sense that a church has a culture as well, especially a culture that needs to be shaped or guarded or curated in some way. Because my experience of culture up until that point had been that culture was something that's static, something that's fix something that you have to learn so that you can understand it and navigate it so you don't offend people. But this idea of culture being something that you can shape, something that has to be curated, something that can change over time, that was a new idea to me. But you know, the more you think about it, the more you realize that that's really true, that culture is something that is not static. It's something that is fluid. It changes over time, and it can change. So, for example, we often talk about the culture of the 1960s or the culture of the 1980s and how it's different than the culture today. Well, that just highlights the fact that cultures can and do change over time. So it's not a fixed thing. It's something that can and does change. Furthermore, every group of people whether it's people in a geographic region or people in a business, right? A business has a culture. Your family, as a group of people, you have a culture. Even your life, on that basic level, there's a culture of your life. Now, what is culture, right? It's a notoriously difficult word to define. If you look around at different definitions, you'll find that there are a lot of them, and they all, they're all pretty different. Uh, for example, Richard Niebuhr, he's a theologian, in his book, Christ and Culture, he defines culture as this, a social realm of purposive achievements that reflects commitments to a plurality of values. Like, oh my God, like, what is that? I think I fell asleep a little bit just saying that. That was, this is a terrible definition. I gotta, I like Richard Niebuhr, but man, that definition stinks. I'm sorry. You know, here's how I would define culture. Here's how it is. Culture is the way things are done around here. It's that simple. The way things are done around here, wherever here is for you. In your workplace, there's a culture. It's the way things are done around there. Here in our church, we have a culture. In your family, there's a culture. Wherever here is, culture is the way things are done around here. And here's why I like this definition, because, you see, it's possible to have a good, healthy culture, a culture that actually reflects the things that you truly believe and value and, and say, these are important things. But you realize that it's also possible to have a toxic culture. It's possible to have a sick culture. It's possible to have a culture which does not accurately reflect the things which you truly believe and say are important. And, you know, if, if you've ever been in a workplace, for example, or in a family situation that had a culture that was toxic, you know what that's like. Now, here's the thing about toxic culture, right? If you would ask someone in a toxic culture, um, you know, do you think that being a selfish jerk is a core value? Is that like one of your deeply held beliefs, that it's a good thing to be a selfish jerk? They would say, well, of course not. And yet that's what they're doing, right? In other words, uh, if we're not careful, 
if we're not intentional about developing a culture that actually reflects our values, what will happen is a culture will develop, but it can oftentimes be a culture which does not reflect the things that you truly believe, the things that you value in theory. And this is why we have to guard the culture. It takes work, it takes intention, it takes purposefulness uh, to do that, whether that's the culture of your life or the culture of your family or the culture of our church as a community. And so I want to challenge you to ask yourself that question. Reflect on this. What is the culture of your family? What is the culture of your life personally? Well, here's the good news, though. Culture can change. Culture can be changed. And God has given us the power and the resources to change the culture of our lives, of our families, and of the groups that we're a part of. So here at the beginning of the year, I think it's good for us to take some time to consider what it looks like to create what I like to call a gospel culture here in our church, and of course as well in our families and in our lives individually, and to ask the question, what can we do practically to create that kind of culture? So the title of today's message is Full of Grace and Truth. And here's what we're going to see in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. We're going to see that God's glory was made visible in Jesus. And now we have the opportunity to show God's glory to the world by being people and creating communities that are full of grace and truth. So I know that's a mouthful, but what we're going to do is we're going to take that sentence, we're going to break it into two parts, and that'll be our guide for studying this passage and thinking through this idea. So the first part of that is this. God's glory was made visible in Jesus. It says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, John's Gospel is unique in this way, that John, unlike the other gospel writers, John introduces us to Jesus not by telling us about his birth, not by telling us about the beginning of his ministry, but by telling us about the cosmic significance of who Jesus is in that big, global, universal picture. Jesus, John tells us, is the Word. Now this word, the Word, in Greek it's the word logos. And the reason that matters is because for the Greek philosophers, they use this term logos, the word, to speak about what we would call today a higher power. So a lot of people say, I, I'm not sure if I believe in God. I believe in there's some kind of higher power. Well, for the Greeks, they referred to that higher power as the logos, kind of the the controlling principle of the universe, the higher power that controls the universe. But John's telling us here in John chapter 1, that higher power that you believe in, he became a person, right? He was the creator of the universe. He was the God of the Hebrews. He was the one who, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Him, that God, he is the higher power that you think you believe in. And that God, the Logos, he became one of us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we call the incarnation. It's what we've been talking about throughout the season of Advent. It's that God came and he inhabited our space. He became one of us in order to reveal himself to us and to save us. And John goes on to say this. And we have seen his glory. Now we'll stop right there for a second because... Anyone who would have read that phrase, we have seen his glory. If they just knew even just a little bit about the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that phrase, we have seen his glory, it would have triggered immediately a memory in their mind. It would have reminded them, taken them back immediately 
to a passage that's very famous in the Bible. In fact, perhaps one of the most important and famous passages in the Bible, it's found in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Here's what's happening in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses was up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And as he's up there, the presence of God is there, and Moses makes a bold request of God. Moses asks the Lord, please show me your glory. And God responded, and he said, Moses, I love the fact that you want to see my glory, but you need to understand you cannot see my face because no one can see me and live. But, the Lord said, I will do something for you. Here's what I'll do for you. I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will pro proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So the next morning, Moses got up early in the morning, and he hid himself in the cleft of a rock, just as God had instructed him to do. And it says there in Exodus 34, verse 5, that the glory of the Lord descended on the mountain in a cloud, and it stood there with him, and the Lord proclaimed his name. Now, God's name, in this sense, speaks to or refers to his essential nature, his character, who he is. It says in verse 8 there in Exodus 34, in response to this, Moses bowed his head and worshipped. It was a powerful experience. But even more than being a powerful experience, understand, this was a defining moment because this is one of the very few places in the entire Bible where God describes who he is and what he is like. God is saying in this passage, this is who I am. This is what I am like. And for that reason, this is one of the most quoted passages in the entire Bible by the other biblical writers. So when the other biblical writers are writing, they refer back to this passage over 200 times throughout the Bible. In other words, this passage right here is ground zero for our theology of God. If we want to ask the question, who is God? What is God like? This is the place we need to go. And it says here in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keep that phrase in mind. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, first of all, this is important because it tells us that the glory of God, right? What is God's glory? It tells us here, God's glory is his character. It's who he is and how he relates to us. God's glorious character is summed up in these two important words that are translated steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Everything else in that passage essentially describes these two words and what they look like in practice. So the Hebrew word that's translated steadfast love is the word hesed. Has said, it's a word we really don't have a direct translation for in the English language. And that's why, if you read in your Bible, you'll notice that sometimes that word is translated in different ways, even though it's the same word in Hebrew. Sometimes it's translated as unfailing love, sometimes it's translated as favor, sometimes it's translated as unending loyalty. You see, the word, the other word there, faithfulness, it's the word emet. Emet, which literally means 
truth. It can also be translated as integrity. And this Hebrew phrase, right? These two words, hesed ve'emet. Hesed ve'emet. It's used throughout the, New, the Old Testament, rather, to describe God's character. It's used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's character and what he's like. Now, here in Exodus 34, God describes what hesed and emet look like in practice. Hesed, God's steadfast love, it means that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. God's grace, it extends to sins of all shapes and of all sizes. And emet, God's unwavering truth. It means that he has a perfect standard and therefore he won't sweep things under the carpet. He's holy and he is completely dedicated or committed to eradicating sin forever. So he will, it says, by no means clear the guilty. Now, you might hear that and you might say, well, wait a second. Isn't that almost a little bit even like contradictory Right? For God to say, on the one hand, that he forgives sin, but in the very next breath, he says that he will by no means clear the guilty. I mean, aren't those two things opposites? Aren't they mutually exclusive? How can they both be true at the same time? And yet, throughout the Old Testament, this tension builds, this question, this builds to the point where some scholars even say that the the Old Testament is really all of, if you were to boil it down, it really all comes down to this one big question. Who will God turn out to be in the end? Will he turn out to be a God of love or a God of justice? A God of grace or a God of truth? And maybe sometimes you feel that tension yourself in your own life, right? Should you be a person who is focused on taking a stand for the truth and what is right? Or should you be a person who is characterized by compassion and grace and mercy? It's interesting because the Old Testament actually comes to an end without resolving the issue, without answering that question of how God can be both full of grace and full of truth at the same time. But then here in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, when we come to the New Testament, John tells us, the Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those words, grace and truth, here's what's so interesting. They are the Greek equivalents of the Hebrew words chesed ve'emet, steadfast love and faithfulness. What it's saying here is this. John is telling us, not only does Jesus have the character of God in fullness because he is God, but also in Jesus, we finally see how God can be both full of grace and full of truth at the same time without any contradiction and without any compromise between the two. Because in Jesus, the glory of the invisible God, his steadfast love and his unwavering truth, they were embodied in a person. They were lived out. They were put on display for all to see. And the relational beauty that characterized Jesus' life as a result of him being full of grace and full of truth, that relational beauty is the reason why people were drawn to Jesus. It's the reason why people are still drawn to Jesus over every century since then. But here's the thing. The glo that glory, that relational beauty of God's character, that he's full of grace and full of truth. You know, it wasn't just meant to stay with Jesus 2,000 years ago. And that brings us to the 
next part of our sentence, which is this. God's glory was made visible in Jesus, and now we have the opportunity to show God's glory to the world by being people and creating communities that are full of grace and truth. So just as Jesus embodied God's grace and God's truth and put it on display for the world to see, now we as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity to do that as well. Grace and truth are not competing options that you have to choose between. You see, Jesus wasn't full of grace at one moment and full of truth in another moment. He embodied both in fullness all the time. So the question is this, how do we create that kind of culture in our homes, in our church, in our lives personally, a culture that's characterized by being full of grace and full of truth? Well, here's how one person explained the nuts and bolts of how culture is created, right? In your life, in a church, in your family, in a business. Here's how culture is created. Culture is the combination of what you create and what you allow. That's how culture is created. It's a combination of what you create and what you allow. And we see a good example of that, by the way, in Paul's letter to the Colossians. He talks about creating a gospel culture. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, we'll just look at one part of it right now. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul spends, as he usually does in his letters, the first two chapters talking about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what it means for us. But then starting in chapter 3 of Colossians. Paul begins talking about how these gospel truths that he's told us about in chapters 1 and 2, how they now are meant to create a gospel culture in our lives and in our communities. Remember, what is culture? Culture is the way things are done around here. And culture is a combination of what you create and what you allow. So first, Paul talks about, he starts out by talking about the things that are not allowed in a gospel culture. What's not tolerated in a gospel culture, he says, is carnal or earthly behaviors, immorality, covetousness, idolatry. He says in verses 6 and 7 there in Colossians 3, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Therefore, they have no place in a gospel culture. He then goes on to list other things that are not allowed in a gospel culture. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Verse 8, he says lying has no place in a gospel culture. Verse 10, he says racism has no place in a gospel culture. And then after telling us what is not allowed in a gospel culture, Paul then begins talking about the actions and the attitudes, the behaviors that uniquely do characterize a gospel culture. He says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, as you read that list, here's what I want you to notice. All of the things listed there, kindness, holiness, patience, they are all things which we're told in the Bible are attributes of God. This is, these are describing who God is and what he's like. These are God's attributes. In other words, we are being encouraged as children of God with his spirit indwelling us and empowering us to embody and live out the attributes of God. And then in verse 13, Paul begins to describe what I like to call gospel reenactment, which means acting towards other people in the same way that God has acted towards you. 
Notice what he says, bearing with one another, just as God has been patient and long-suffering towards you. Forgiving each other, just as Christ has forgiven you. Being committed to one another, right? In other words, when you get upset with somebody, when somebody offends you, you don't take your ball and go home. You don't quit and walk away. No, no, you work through it because you're committed to one another. And he says, verse 15, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that's what a culture that is shaped by the gospel is all about. It's about applying the implications of the gospel embodying the attributes of God by the power of the Spirit of God within you. And as you do that, you know what will happen? It will have powerful impact on the mission of God in the world. You know, think about it like this. If you look at Jesus and the early Christians, what was it about them that gave them such a powerful witness in the world at that time? I would say it was two things. They were full of grace and they were full of truth. On the one hand, they were doggedly committed to true doctrine when it came to their beliefs about Jesus and what had been revealed in the scriptures. They took a stand for those beliefs, even in the face of persecution and death. So the early Christians were committed to true doctrine. And at the same time, the other thing which caused them to have a strong witness was that they allowed those gospel truths that they believed so deeply, they allowed them to shape their lives, to shape their attitudes, behaviors, in such a way that it created a culture amongst them that turned the world upside down. It was a culture that cared about living out God's love and grace towards others, both inside the Christian community and outside the Christian community. They, they said, Jesus sacrificed his life for us. Therefore, we should be willing to sacrifice our lives for others. Just as God was generous to us in Christ, now we're going to be radically generous towards others. Just as Jesus has forgiven us, now we're going to forgive others. Just as God pursued us when we were outsiders, now we are going to pursue and welcome outsiders, those whom the world turns against and rejects. You see, their gospel doctrine resulted in a gospel culture, which created a loving community for those on the inside and a missional impulse to reach those on the outside with God's grace and truth. But listen, here's the thing. It's possible to have a culture like they did, which accurately reflects the things that you believe. But it's also possible, if you're not careful, to develop or have a culture develop around you in your life or in your family, which does not accurately reflect the good things that you truly believe about Jesus, for example. Author Francis Schaeffer, he talks about this and he calls it uh, ugly orthodoxy. Ugly orthodoxy. What he means by that is this, that there are some people who believe all the right things about God, right? They could go down the list and they believe all the right things. They have, you know, good doctrine. But in their actions and attitudes towards others, they're ugly. They don't reflect the heart of God. And what Francis Schaeffer says, he says, to live in that way where you've got truth, but you lack grace, 
He said it's, it's, it goes the other way too. If you have grace, but you don't have truth, he says that means you're actually not orthodox. You're, you're actually out of line with what the Bible teaches and the way of Jesus. See, true orthodoxy, in other words, isn't just giving a nod to all the right doctrines. It's also embracing those truths in such a way that it shapes you as a person and it creates a gospel culture in your life and in the communities that you're a part of. And so the solution to this ugly orthodoxy, Schaefer says, is that we actually need to allow the truths of the scripture to permeate and shape every area of our lives. And when you do that, it's incredibly powerful because it, what it does is it puts the transformative power of the gospel on display for others to see. It reminds me of a quote that someone sent to me recently. They said this, they said, be the reason why someone believes that God is good. So how can we create a gospel culture in our church, in our families, in our lives individually? Well, remember, culture is a combination of what you create and what you allow. So it's worth asking yourself, what are you going to create? Like, what are the things that you're going to purposefully do and, and invest in your life, like on purpose? What are you going to do? And what are the things which you are going to not allow, right? What are you going to allow and what are you going to not allow? What are the things that you're going to remove from your life in order to create that culture? I remember talking with a friend a couple of years ago, and I was asking him about his plans in regard to something he was involved in. And he told me, well, I don't really have a plan. I just like to let things happen organically. And I kind of, I laughed on accident. I didn't mean to laugh. I didn't, I wasn't trying to be rude, but I laughed. And the reason I laughed, well, he asked me, why did you laugh? Well, the reason I laughed was because that year, particularly, my wife had done a lot of gardening, which meant that I had spent a lot of time pulling weeds. And I, I'd been pulling all these weeds for like weeks. And so this guy says to me, well, I just like to let things grow organically. And I laughed because I said, for, you know what grows organically is weeds. I know this from firsthand experience. If you have a garden and you just say, well, I'm just going to take a hands-off approach to the garden, right? I'm just going to let grow whatever wants to grow and it'll be great. Okay, something will grow, but you know what's going to grow? Just a bunch of weeds. That's what's going to grow. If you just let things grow naturally, you're going to end up with a bunch of weeds. A lot of things will grow if you just neglect it and leave it to be, but they won't necessarily be good things. They won't be beautiful things. They won't be things that you can glean from that have good, beautiful fruit, right? You know what will grow is a bunch of weeds, and the things that are good and beautiful will be weaker because they'll be choked out by the weeds, right? The weeds will be sucking up all the nutrients. So what you get will be fewer and it will be weaker as a result. Now, instead, the picture that God gives us in the Bible is that in the beginning, God created the world and he placed the very first man and the very first woman, where? In a garden that he made especially for them and he gave them a job. This job in the Bible is called the cultural mandate, right? There we go, that idea of culture, cultivating something. Here's what he called them to do. He called them to be keepers of the garden, keepers of the garden, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to manage the garden. In other words, do you realize that's part of who God called us to be as people? Keepers of the garden, keepers of the garden, gardeners. You know, being a gardener is a really interesting thing because a gardener can't cause anything to grow. Right? They can't like flip a switch and cause it to happen. They can't, you can't like shout at your plants and they grow because you told them to. All you can do in gardening is you can create an environment 
that enables growth, that allows growth, and you can remove the things that hinder growth. So a gardener, what do they do? They organize the garden. They remove the rocks. They till the soil, make sure the soil is healthy and good so it can receive. They water the garden. They pull out the weeds and they protect the plants. And that's a really good analogy, by the way. It's a really good picture for our lives and for our families and what it means to be part of a church. You are a keeper of the garden. You realize that? In your home, in your family, in whatever your area you have influence, you are a keeper of the garden. And so the question is, what kinds of things are you going to put in? What are you going to plant? And also, what are you going to pull out? What are the weeds and the rocks that need to be removed in order to improve the soil so it can be good and healthy, so things can grow and become strong? Now, I mentioned earlier that when I came to this church, Pete had told me to guard the culture. So what was the culture of this church that I was supposed to guard? Well, from the beginning, uh, this has been a church that has been characterized by a few things. A high regard for the Bible and a desire to be actively engaged in the mission of God, both locally and around the world. So as a church, we put a very high priority on studying the scriptures and being receptive to God's word. We strive to be responsive to God in worship. We care about discipleship and growing as followers of Jesus. And we are actively involved in God's redemptive work, both locally through local outreach and around the world through missions. I remember visiting Whitefields back when I was a missionary and I would come to town to visit my parents and I would go around. I would visit several churches and there was something about this church in particular. Particularly, it was the culture of this church which I really loved. It was the reason why when I was invited to become the pastor of the church, I said yes and I wanted to come because there was a relational beauty that was characteristic of this church. It was a spirit of grace in this church along with a love for the truth. And so here's the thing. As we now grow and develop as a church, it is really important that we do what Pete said, that we guard the culture. And that you know what? That's not just true for our church. You realize it's also true for your family and for your life personally. So how do we create and maintain a gospel culture in our lives, in our homes, a culture that is full of grace and truth? Well, on a really practical level, I'll give you this. Barna Research Group, they did a study a few years ago to try to determine how people actually change and grow spiritually. And they did all this research, hundreds of thousands of people, and here's what they found. The most effective things you can do on a practical level to grow spiritually are, number one, in this order, read the Bible. And number two, prayer. Number three, church attendance. And number four, small group participation. Those four things are the most catalytic things you can do in order to encourage growth and transformation in your life. So here's the deal. I want to encourage you to do these things this year. I want to encourage you to commit to doing these four simple practices throughout this entire year. As a church seeking to be transformed by the gospel, seeking to create a gospel culture that's full of grace and truth, I want to challenge you to commit to doing these four simple practices throughout the year. So first of all, I want to challenge you to read through the entire Bible this year. Did you know that if you read the Bible for a little bit less than 15 minutes every day, you can easily read through the whole thing in a year? 
It's totally doable. And as you do it, just imagine how much you're going to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, how much God's going to speak to you, how transformative that will be for your life to fill your heart and your mind with God's words every day. And we have that Bible reading plan that Jason mentioned. I encourage you, pick that up in the foyer and let's read the Bible together this year. Furthermore, I want to encourage you to get involved in this church community here. Join a group, right? Join a group where you can study and pray with others. Join a team where you can be part of building this community of grace and truth and serving others. These practices, these are the ways that we can practically cultivate the garden of our church and of your life personally and of your family. You know, spiritual disciplines. These are things like Bible reading, prayer, church attendance, confessing sins, serving others, giving to support the work of God. These things, you know what they're like? They're like small steps. As you take a small step, it doesn't feel like you've made a lot of progress, but you know what happens? If you keep making those small steps over and over, over time, you can go really far. And as we do these things, may we seek to not just believe the right things, but to let the truths of the gospel sink into our hearts and transform us into people who reflect the heart of God in our actions, in our attitudes towards others. Now, the message of the gospel is that God came to us in the person of Jesus. He brought his strength into our weakness he did for us what we could not do for ourselves in order to save us and redeem us. And now we have the privilege of getting to live in such a way that shows his glory to the world, both by championing the truth and by letting those truths affect us and shape us and shape our lives so that we embody, and embody the character and love of God that we have received. So God's glory was made visible in Jesus and now we have the opportunity to show God's glory to the world by becoming people and creating communities that are full of grace and truth. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.